Father, we do thank you that I'm back. We thank you that the class is still meeting and we're ready to go again, Father. We thank you that we can study the Word. I'm mindful of having traveled and seen other places that we are so blessed, Father, to have an opportunity to study regularly. And the hunger in the church is everywhere, Father, but your grace and mercy has seen fit to feed us here regularly. May we continue to understand these things by the power of the Spirit and not by our own. Let us not make up answers, but let us hear from you. And let us know the truth so that we may be like you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the prior three weeks, we studied the design of the tabernacle and its furnishings, which I hope you agree was an interesting study. Along the way, as you know, we took time to note how all that God carefully designed there was intended to reflect the person and the work of Jesus Christ, which is the main message of the tabernacle. The tabernacle came to the nation of Israel as part of the law, which itself was part of a covenant And all of these things are intended in one way or another to picture Christ. And then if you consider how many pictures of Christ we found in the tabernacle, it would confirm that the tabernacle itself, just like the rest of the law and like the rest of the covenant, was always intended to point to Christ. That was its main purpose. And there were other purposes as well, but the main purpose was to bring men to Christ. That raises another topic for the moment as we introduce tonight's teaching. The law and the sacrificial system that was conducted in the tabernacle were part of a temporary dispensation. And this particular dispensation, Paul says, acted as a custodian over the nation of Israel. The law gave men an opportunity to have a relationship with the Lord while they awaited the grace that was to be available later. And once grace comes through Christ's atoning work, then the law and the sacrificial system no longer provided the mechanism or the means by which men had relationship with God, that was superseded by Christ himself, whom all these other things have been pointing to all along. So the law and the sacrificial system is a temporary method or means by which God can make available a relationship to men, but it points to the ultimate means of that relationship in Christ. The father can only be found through the son. And once the son was fully revealed, then he is no longer going to be found through pictures or through shadows of his son as provided in the law or elsewhere. Hebrews says this very succinctly, Hebrews 10.1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So the writer mentions that the law was only a shadow. But there's an interesting element that comes with the fact that God revealed himself in different dispensations leading to Christ. With each time that the Lord brought a new dispensation, and a way to say that would be a change in the way God regulated his relationship with men. Every time he instituted a new change to that relationship regulation, he would then follow that instituting of a new dispensation with clear evidence to us in Scripture that the new dispensation was not the ultimate solution for our sin, that it was only temporary. Each dispensation in Scripture is accompanied by a failure of sin that demonstrates that this new dispensation is not sufficient to address the problems of sin. For example, the very first man in the garden was in perfection and in innocence, and that's followed by a fall into sin. So that can't last. Then God set man outside the garden under new conditions, but then Cain kills Abel. Well, that condition obviously, is not the final solution. Then God flooded the world and Noah had to repopulate the world, but then Noah got drunk. 
So Noah and the flood is not the solution to sin. Then God called Abraham and promised him a son. And then Abraham sinned with Hagar. And that proves that that covenant with Abraham was not the solution. And this pattern continues. After each new dispensation, sin raises its ugly head again, proving that the hero of that story, whatever it is, was not the solution that God had promised from the beginning, but there was still a weight required for the final solution to sin. When Jesus came, he lived a sinless life. There was no sin associated with his dispensation, showing that that was the solution. So now we're focused on Moses. We're focused on Moses and the nation of Israel, the law, the tabernacle, and the sacrificial system. This is a new dispensation, a new regulation for man's relationship with God. Is this the solution to sin, one might ask? Will this dispensation finally resolve the problem of sin on earth? And we know the answer, of course, is no. And therefore, we know we must see at some point in this story the fall of our heroes, of those who are the embodiment of this new dispensation, of the ones who bring it. And Moses being one of them, of course, but the nation as a whole here stands as the custodian of this new dispensation. Will they last? Will they rise above sin because of this new regulation of relationship? No. So as we go into the story tonight, we have chapter 30 and chapter 31 to 30 to finish, 31 to study. And we're going to study the beginning of this fall in the dispensation of law. Before we do that, we have some things to cover from the conclusion of studying the tabernacle as they relate to the consecration or the anointing of that building. So that'll be the first part of tonight. We'll read chapter 30, verses 22 to 33. 22 to 33. It begins, Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take also for yourself the finest of spices, of flowing myrrh, 500 shekels, and a fragrant cinnamon half as much, 250, and of fragrant cane, 250. And of cassia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil, a hin. You shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense. And the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and the laver and its stand you shall also consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister as priests to me. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on anyone's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. Whoever shall mix any like it, or whoever puts any of it on a layman shall be cut off from his people. So let's briefly understand why God is so insistent about this process. The final instruction he gives Moses here concerning the design of the tabernacle is for this anointing oil to be used to consecrate the tabernacle. And then, as we'll see in a minute, another set of instructions for making the incense that's burned on the altar of incense. In the case of the oil, there are five ingredients that are going to go into making this. It's like a perfume. Four of them are spices. The fifth is the olive oil. The spices that are mentioned here are largely things that originate from Arabia or farther east, even as far as India. And they're rare. They're hard to get. So the question becomes, how did Israel expect to get their hands on these things there in the desert? What's the answer? They got it from Egypt. And Egypt, as a world power, they were the center of world trade in all of the world in that day. So if there was something to be had in the world, Egypt had it. 
or found a way to get it. And as we know already, when Israel left Egypt, they plundered it. So they took all these things. And I have to imagine as they took some of them, people probably wonder, what am I going to do with this? Well, God had a plan. The perfume is mixed or is to be mixed by the hands of a skilled apothecary. You know, the old style pharmacist kind of person. And then this oil was used only to anoint the sanctuary, the items that are in it, and the priests themselves. But the exact recipe for the perfume could never be used for any other purpose, nor could anyone else make it for themselves. Only the priests could make it, and only for this specific set of uses. We know in Scripture anointing oil is generally a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit to designate something or someone for the work of the Lord, to set them apart for that purpose. Oil pictures this reality. When the Spirit does it, the Spirit is coming upon or in somebody for a purpose of enabling them to be serving God in some particular way, to consecrate them and empower them for that service. Holy just means to be set aside from sin. So when each believer comes to faith, they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and they are anointed in the sense that they are given a spiritual gift. And by virtue of you receiving a gift of some kind, you have been anointed to use it in some specific sense. In other words, you don't get a gift for no reason. You get it to use it. The use of it is expected, so the anointing of the Holy Spirit comes with that expectation that you would do ministry in some fashion. And that gift is an ability reserved for use in service to God. In the same way that this oil had a specific use and couldn't be shared with other people and used for other purposes, likewise, the gift that we are given in the Holy Spirit by faith is something that sets us aside for service in the body of Christ. It's not a parlor trick. It is to be holy or set apart in glorifying God. That's its purpose. And as we use the gift in service to the body, God is glorified by that service. But God alone brings that anointing. God controls who, he controls when and how that anointing takes place. That's the teaching of Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. In this case, in the case of the oil, the Lord is designating that the oil, which, as we said, pictures the spirit, would be used only to anoint the priest, the tabernacle, and its furniture. And collectively, these three things represent Christ's ministry, which we've already studied. So we could say that the anointing of these three things with oil pictures the anointing of the Holy Spirit on Christ himself when Christ came in the form of man in ministry. As he was baptized, he receives the Holy Spirit coming upon him and visibly made known by the dove that we see representing the Holy Spirit. That's where Christ was officially anointed by the Holy Spirit for ministry. And the next thing he does is he begins his public ministry. In fact, the word Messiah means the anointed one, the one who's set aside for ministry. So Jesus was the anointed one selected by the Father to be the solution to sin. Only Christ would once and forever solve the problem of man's sin by living a life that withstood temptation and never gave in to sin. And by his death, he conquers the power of sin. And even the prohibition against them counterfeiting or the oil or misusing it is another picture of Christ. The Father alone designates who the Messiah is. That's why in the scene in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, the Father would have the world see the Spirit descend, and then he follows that with words of affirmation. We see that in Luke 3, 21. He says, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. So in the way that the oil pictures Christ and the anointing God did for him, 
you see that it can only be Christ. God alone assigns it. It cannot be something others take for themselves. Secondly, Israel was not permitted to counterfeit their own version of the anointing oil. And men, likewise, cannot take God's place in the anointing work of the Holy Spirit. I cannot claim for myself a gift that is not given to me by God. I cannot counterfeit the Holy Spirit and assume his power in my own power. As an example, as a teacher, if I believe I have the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach, and that's my spiritual gift, then if I teach with authority and if I represent the word of God accurately, it is not I but the Holy Spirit working in me that makes that possible. Should someone else want to mimic that and come up here after me and not have the Holy Spirit's gift for that purpose, they can never repeat that process because they'll only have what the flesh can provide, which is nothing when it comes to teaching God's word. So many men have tried and are trying, in fact, to do that very thing every day. False teachers are probably one of the most common ways we see that. Charlatans who try to use the power of human persuasion or convincing argument or displays of supposedly supernatural power or other techniques to mimic or replace what the Holy Spirit alone can do. That is the equivalent of someone trying to create their own version of this oil. That methodology does gain some measure of followers or fame or money or whatever they seek. In fact, just turn on your television at night. You'll see it happening. But you don't have to look there to find it. It's been going on from the beginning. There's a good scene in Acts chapter 8 when a man tried to do this very thing. It says in Acts 8.18, Now when Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the apostles money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Well, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. So the perfume oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit anointing Christ as the one and the only way and of the way God anoints his people by the Holy Spirit. In both cases, it's similar purpose, setting someone apart, showing God's approval and his empowerment for specific reasons to serve his specific needs or will. Next in this chapter to finish, God now directs Moses to create another formula, now one of incense, which will become what's burned on that altar of incense, which you saw the last time we met in the holy place. Verses 34 to the end. He says, then the Lord said to Moses, take for yourself spices, stockte, onica, galbanum, spices with pure frankincense. There shall be equal part of each. With it, you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. Now, these spices are similar to the ones that were used in the perfume in the fact that they originate from Arabia and India. And again, they would have been brought from Egypt. These were also mixed by an apothecary. The ingredients were beat into a powder. And so you're talking about something that's based largely on plant resin. If you look at the ingredients, resin is a material that's very volatile. It's made from volatile oils, so it burns very easily. So that would have allowed for it to burn in pots of some type on top of the altar of incense. Salt was added as a preservative for the material, but it's also a symbol of holiness. So it incorporates both. And it's burned twice a day in the altar of incense, and that burning is the means by which the priest of Israel 
made intercession for the nation of Israel before God. So it was symbolic of that intercession. Smoke rising up, passing through the veil that humans could not pass through but once a year and reaching into the Holy of Holies. And it's said to be a pleasing odor to the Lord. Now, the Lord didn't have a nose, not in human sense. So what is it that's pleasing about it? Well, if you read into the New Testament, for example, Revelation 5, Revelation 5, 8, you learn this about how God perceives incense symbolically. And it says, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp. And then listen, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The incense in the way it's used in the tabernacle is a picture of intercessory prayer coming before God. It's a picture because it works really well physically. Smoke rises and wafts into other places and fills a room. And that's the nature of how we understand our prayers reach God. Like the perfume, the incense may not be used anywhere else, not for personal use. Well, that's a picture of Christ again, because our intercessor representing us to the Father is Jesus. And Jesus speaks for us and represents us. But if you seek to be heard by the Father in any other way, through any other means, you won't be heard. The Father only hears what his Son represents to him as our intercessor. Another way to say it is the father is only tuned to the son's frequency and the son only hears from his sheep. And that's why Hebrews says that without faith, meaning faith in Christ, in our case, it is impossible for us to please God. And even more, the Bible teaches that the prayers of those who are without the righteousness of Christ through faith are futile. For example, Psalms 34 says verses 15 through 17. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. Later in Proverbs 1529, we hear the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And in keeping with that teaching in the New Testament, a man approached Jesus knowing this teaching from the Old Testament, and he said this to Jesus in John 9, 31. He says, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Collectively, what we're learning is that the prayers, the prayer activity of an unbeliever doesn't guarantee a hearing. It's not holy to bend down and pray. Everyone does it around the world. Anyone can do it. It's a meaningless gesture if it's not combined with faith in the one and only who appeals to the Father on our behalf. And so without faith, it's impossible to please him. Without the righteousness of Christ, our prayers are not heard. How does someone who is an unbeliever become the person whom God hears? By faith. So when we give someone the sinner's prayer, is it heard before they're a believer? It can't be. The concept of a sinner's prayer is a misnomer. It's a believer's prayer or it's no prayer at all. Any man can mix incense, but only the method that God prescribed will please him. And many men can pray, but only those who pray to Jesus and the Father will be heard. Now, we're at the end of the description of the tabernacle and all that is in it. And you might imagine at this point, Moses starts to wonder what's ahead of him in the process of trying to do all that has been commanded. I mean, you've heard God mention using skilled craftsmen and weavers and perfumers and so on. Where was Moses going to find all these men with all these skills? Now, the Israelites are skilled laborers, true, but they had probably never attempted anything so exacting, so intricate as what they were going to go after now and what they're going to have to go build. They've certainly never seen anything like it before. 
So in the next chapter, the Lord begins by telling Moses where he can find the skilled workmen who he will need in order to construct all that the Lord specified. So chapter 31 is a short chapter about how God ensured Moses had the people he needed. As we leave that chapter, we'll go into chapter 32 tonight just briefly to get to the introduction of what I started with tonight. That is the sin that follows this dispensation. Let's go read chapter 31, the first part, 31, 1 through 11. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, So I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God and wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship, to make artistic designs for work in gold, in silver, and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold... I myself have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Daniel. And in the hearts of all who are skilled, I have put skill, that they may make all that I have commanded you. In the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony, the mercy seat upon it and all the furniture of the tent. The table also and its utensils and the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense. The altar of burnt offering also with all its utensils and the labor in its stand. The woven garments as well. And the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons with which to carry on their priesthood. The anointing oil also and the fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them according to all that I have commanded you. So we see now the instructions that he received being fulfilled through these men. First, he selects Bezalel, who is the grandson of Hur. Now, you may remember Hur is the name of one of those men who held up Moses' hands in that battle against Amalek. This is his grandson now being selected to be the lead workman or lead craftsman overseeing all of the tabernacle work. The Lord has not only selected this man, but he's equipped him, we're told, for the duty. In the description I read, it says the man will have the ability to design in metal, to cut in stone and to carve wood, which I think would probably be a rare thing to find someone who had all those skills. Those, as it turns out, are the basic building materials of the tabernacle, wood, stone and metals. And with his skills, he's going to oversee the work. So it's obvious that he won't do all of it. He's going to oversee it. But his skill is necessary to ensure that others do it properly. Secondly, the Lord raises up Aholiab, which is the man who will work under Bezalel as a supporting role, as a second role. And then after him, a whole bunch of other craftsmen, he says, are going to be stood up and prepared to do this work collectively. The camp of Israel is going to find every talent of construction they will need to obey God's instructions. Now, by those words of assurance to Moses, you and I get to take away another lesson of our own. In fact, there are three essential lessons, as I count them, coming out of what Moses is told here by the Lord concerning our service to the Lord. First, God chooses men to serve him. God chooses Bezalel, Aholiab were never asked whether they wanted to enlist in God's army or become these craftsmen or choose to follow God, etc., etc., etc. They don't even know these words have been spoken yet. They're sitting down in the camp unaware entirely of their new jobs. They, uh, at some point, they're going to be told when Moses comes, this is what God has given for you to do. And I suspect they're going to be surprised to hear that they have these jobs. Leadership among God's people is a privilege and it takes many forms, but it comes from the Lord. And when it comes, it's an offer you can't refuse, literally, according to Scripture. Men are called to acknowledge the call of God. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, the Scriptures say. So the first thing we're called to do is recognize that call 
in ourselves as God reveals it and respond in obedience. The second thing we have to do is recognize that same call in others and respect it as a calling from the Lord. It's not from men. It's from God. The best men can do is agree with it and recognize it. We don't endorse it. We don't make it possible. We don't approve it. We don't review it. We don't ordain it. We don't put a stamp of approval on it. We recognize it because it is, and we obey it because it's from the Lord. Now, that's easier said than done, but what makes it less than easy today is the man-made traditions that have layered themselves on top of God's call, and we have a hard time now separating them from the call itself. That's our task. Secondly, when the call comes, second principle, when the call comes... We can't allow our fears or our doubts or the fact that we may not have a pedigree or formal training or prior experience become an excuse for not obeying the call of God. Look at this example. The instructions God gave to Moses give us every impression that neither of these men were prior skilled artisans before this moment of God's call. Because from what God says, it's clear he is going to fill them with the Holy Spirit so that they will then be equipped. The sense is God had to do that in order for them to be prepared for this work. We should then imagine that they would be surprised themselves to discover they can work in metal, wood and stone when they're told to. How does that actually feel? Well, if my own experience in the pulpit is any measure of what it must have been like them, you don't get a tingly sensation that tells you you suddenly developed a skill to do this. In fact, you have to start working at it before you realize you have an aptitude for it to some degree. But it's an aptitude God gives through the Holy Spirit, not in your own making. But it's not like Superman. You don't take off your coat and you have a cape on underneath and you didn't know it was there all along. It does not feel like Hollywood. But the reality is it's there. But it requires putting your effort into it to to discover what God has given you, what you've been equipped to do. I wonder if they hesitated to follow Moses' orders when they first heard the news. Scripture demonstrates that the one God calls, he will equip for that calling. He will never make a call on a person's life that he does not also ensure will have the equipping to do the work. But equipping is not a replacement for effort or obedience. It becomes evident through obedience and through effort. Now, these men couldn't use their personal inexperience as an excuse. You know, they had all the experience they needed because God gave it to them through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And that's similar for us. We are given gifts at the point of salvation, we're told in Scripture, which become our means to serve and glorify the Lord in our walk. And so these men could not turn to God as Moses brought them the news and say, well, I'm sorry, I'm not qualified for this assignment. Neither then could we turn our backs on the Lord's call simply because we don't have what we think is the proper qualification. We work for the Lord using his gifts and talents because that's how he's glorified. If we did it in our own power, it'd be to our own glorification. It has to be to him. God is not in the habit of calling qualified men who can then glorify him by the use of their own skills. He is instead in the business of equipping unqualified men to glorify him by their obedience. And you only have to look as far as the apostles to see proof of that. The last principle we learn in the way he called these men. God raises men up to work in partnerships of one kind or another. Why did he need two men if he was going to raise up an army of artisans anyway? Because just like God bringing Moses the 70 elders and because he sent the apostles out in two or more in the book of Acts, etc. It is God's purpose to bring together men to join in the work for fellowship, for encouragement, for reinforcement, for accountability, for any number of good reasons. Christianity is not a spectator sport. 
It is a team sport. It is something we work on together. When the work matters to God, he will ensure the resources are there to get the work accomplished. The people, the money, the goods, whatever he needs. He'll bring those materials. He'll bring those expertise. He'll bring the hands and the feet. And each person who is called must labor. We all know that. But the work will never languish for the want of supply. That's one of the principles that undergirds our ministry, verse-by-verse ministry, and one of the reasons why we uh, do not make overt appeals for funds or, or require that people pay us for our services, because we believe strongly that there is no such thing as God's work going undone for lack of supply. Whatever God wants to do, he does, and he always has enough to make it happen. The fact that we may not always have what we want to do what we want is simply evidence that that's not what we're supposed to go do. We do what we're called to do based on what we have money to go do. Self-evident, God funds what he wants to do. And this is another example of that. He will always raise men up in partnership with the necessary materials, with the necessary equipping, and we work as a team. Now, having set forth in how the work will be accomplished, the Lord returns briefly here at the very end of chapter 31 to the topic of the Sabbath, which may seem out of place in some respects, but it ties in in a way that you'll see in a minute. Let's look at the rest of the chapter, 12 through 17. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. But on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. Moses has been on the mountain now for 40 days. He's at the end of that 40-day period at this point. And at the last of those 40 days, God reminds Moses about his instructions concerning the Sabbath. Now, we've already studied the principle of the Sabbath and its meaning and its relationship to Christ in a previous lesson. So that's not what we're going to do today. In this passage, I just want to pay attention to a couple of new details, things we didn't see last time. First, Moses is told the Sabbath instruction, which the Lord had given to him in the past, is now to be a sign for the covenant that was established between Israel and the Lord. Now, a covenant always includes a sign of some kind. And you want to think about a covenant, you can think of it generally as something like a contract, not exactly, but in any case, it's a solemn agreement between two parties. And like any agreement, even the agreements we make today, the parties need some kind of memorial, some kind of evidence that demonstrates that the covenant actually exists. Today, we would do that through a signature on a contract that we each have a copy of. The signing then of that contract reminds both parties that that agreement is in force. Well, we've seen this pattern in earlier covenants in which something is done, something is made or exchanged that demonstrates that this is, in fact, a covenant in effect. For example, the sign of the Noah covenant was the rainbow. So with that rainbow comes a, a reminder that there was a covenant established between God and his creation. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was physical circumcision among the men of Israel. And so they could see that proof every time they looked. Right. And now we're told that the sign of the Mosaic covenant between the Lord and the people of Israel would be the Sabbath day itself. So we learn by that fact that the Sabbath day 
was included in the covenant so that there would be a sign as long as this covenant remains in effect between the Lord and Israel, the requirement for the Sabbath day remains in effect. So even though the Messiah has come and fulfilled the law for believers, those who accept him, the nation of Israel, though, is still observing the Sabbath today. And that is as it should be, because that covenant still is in effect between God and the nation of Israel. And as you may know from our Revelation study, the Mosaic Covenant is the cause for the Jews experiencing the seven years of tribulation before Christ's return. And it is also the reason for a glorified nation finally embracing the Messiah at the end of that time and entering into the kingdom. So until all of that is fulfilled, there is a Sabbath still for that nation and onward indefinitely. Furthermore, from what we've read, we learn a second new thing about the Sabbath. The sign given in the new covenant, our covenant, is what? What sign do we have as a permanent reminder of the fact that we are in covenant with Christ? The Holy Spirit indwelling us is our sign, or seal, Paul calls it, of our covenant. Like all covenants, the new covenant is permanent. And therefore, like all covenants, the sign that goes with it is permanent, as is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But that indwelling has another name, or that sign in our covenant has another name. It's also called what? The circumcision of the heart. The circumcision of the heart is the sign of the new covenant, while the circumcision in the flesh was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. But the Sabbath is the sign of the old covenant. In Colossians 2.9, you hear this comparison uh, of the circumcision of the heart. Paul says in Colossians 2.9 through 12, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him... You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through the faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So what would it mean to us that our covenant has as its sign a type of circumcision, which obviously makes us think of the Abrahamic covenant as well. What does it mean to us that our covenant uses that sign? It teaches us that the new covenant is organically connected to the Abrahamic covenant, but not to the old covenant. Abraham's covenant included a promise, you may remember, that through his seed, God would bring a blessing to all nations of the earth. So God promised to Abraham a blessing for his nation and a promise that a seed would come through him through whom God would bless all nations. The promise he gave to Abraham was a covenant, but it included a reference to a future covenant that would come as a result of this promise. That future covenant was the new. So in a sense, what God gave to Abraham was fully realized in what he did through the new. We are being invited now as Gentiles into the fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant, even while Israel itself is still waiting for it. Even while Israel itself is still waiting for the promises God delivered to Abraham, he has yet now opened the door for Gentiles to share in it. Paul describes this temporary reversal of fortune in Romans chapter 11. Paul taught that the Gentiles are currently being grafted into the promise that was given to Abraham, while Israel, on the other hand, is being hardened for a time. And as we enter into the new covenant, we receive the sign of that new covenant, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or Paul calls it the circumcision of the heart. So spiritually speaking, and not to be graphic, but spiritually speaking, the Holy Spirit cuts away the veil over our heart 
that sin deposited. And that veil, of course, blinded us to the truth of who God is, to the truth of the gospel. And by the circumcision of the heart, that barrier, like the foreskin removed in physical circumcision, that covering is removed, allowing us to know the Lord fully. So God has intentionally made that comparison or that drawn that comparison in the way he's picturing one covenant with the other. But now you notice the, the Mosaic covenant, the one we're looking at in our study, it plays no part in any of this. It plays no part in our relationship with Christ since he fulfills that covenant on our behalf. Not having been Jewish ourselves, we were never party to it in the first place. And its sign traces nowhere to the origins of the promises given to Abraham. We trace our salvation to the promise given to Abraham, not to a covenant given to Israel through Moses. And even in the signs that God selected, he makes that clear. Paul teaches this clearly in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says in 3:17 through 19, What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Speaking of that promise to Abraham, for if the inheritance that God promised Abraham is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added Because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. So Paul teaches that the law was added to something that already existed. Its purpose of being added was to come 430 years after a promise had been made, but only last so long as till the seed would come. So it fills a gap. It's a dispensation that takes a place in human history for a purpose in time to regulate relationship that God had with his people. But it was not the ultimate solution. It's a dispensation that cannot replace or suffice for what is needed in the case of sin. So at this stage, the Sabbath is being discussed in part to help us understand that there's a sign here that distinguishes this covenant from what God has already been at work doing through circumcision and later circumcision of the heart. So it sets that difference for us clearly, just in the sign, if nothing else. The second reason that the Sabbath is being discussed at this point in Exodus is to help us see an important connection between the tabernacle and the creation story. In verse 17, the Lord repeats that the Sabbath was to be observed because the Lord himself rested. After six days of creation, the Lord wants us to see a connection here between those two moments, between the creation and this moment in Exodus. And there is a really strong connection. If you look at the creation account and compare it to the time Israel has been at the mountain and Moses has been receiving all that he's heard, you'll find a long list of parallels. And through these parallels, we get taught something very important. For example, in both cases, The subjects of the stories, the main point of these two stories is how God made a way for fellowship with man. In the creation account, God created the world. He made a garden. He created man, set him in the garden. All of that was to establish relationship with man. In the wilderness, God created a covenant, made a tabernacle, set up a sacrificial system and created a nation, put the nation in the tabernacle, put the nation in the law, so to speak, and then did all of that to establish fellowship with Israel, with his people. In both cases, you see the Lord's spirit heavily involved, centered in the process of creation. And in Genesis, the spirit of God is central to the formation of the creation. He hovers over the waters. He breathes the breath of life into man. In Exodus, the spirit empowers the workmen to build the structures and make all that God has instructed come together properly. 
In both cases, the narrative progresses through seven distinct stages. And in each stage of these seven begins with the words, and the Lord said. In the creation story, God made Adam and woman according to a specific pattern. That pattern was the likeness of God. The tabernacle was made according to a specific pattern. That was a tabernacle in heaven. The garden contained gold, precious jewels, and cherubim guarded it all. The tabernacle contains gold, precious stones, and the cherubim guard the mercy seat. Going further, when the work was finished in creation, God inspected it and pronounced a blessing upon it, saying it was very good. When the tabernacle will be finished in chapter 39, the Lord has Moses inspect it and pronounce a blessing over all that has been built. God rested on the seventh day of creation, and now the Lord tells Israel, you rest on the seventh day as well, like me. Even if you work on the tabernacle, you can't work on the seventh day. Now, that connection goes further, by the way, but you get the point. Why does God want to make this connection? Why does he want to show that the narrative of how the world began mirrors this narrative of how he's starting a a relationship with Israel? Well, the answer comes from one more important comparison between the creation account and Israel's time in the wilderness. After the creation was finished, the man and woman fell to disobedience because of an animal that tempted them to sin. When Adam and woman fell, they violated the terms of the covenant they had been given in the garden, which was that they are not to eat of the fruit of that tree. And so long as they obeyed that command, they could enjoy fellowship with God in the way that he had established it. But when they disobeyed, they violated the covenant in the garden. The covenant was a promise that they could be there as long as they wanted. If they didn't eat of that tree, but if they ate of the tree, they died. That was the promise. They violated the promise. And as a result, they suffered a great penalty. That penalty involved both an immediate consequence and a long-term consequence. The immediate one was they suffered the penalty of leaving the the place God prepared for them and being wandering, sojourning in the world as opposed to settled in their home and their garden. In the future, they suffer an even greater penalty, the penalty of the curse of their physical bodies dying. In the same way, there will be a fall following the establishment of this covenant between Israel and the Lord. The nation of Israel will be tempted into sin, by Satan hiding in the image of an animal again. By their fall, the nation will violate the most important, the most basic of all the 613 commandments they got. They will break the covenant. They will suffer a great penalty. The penalty will include both an immediate consequence and a long-term consequence. The Lord will pronounce immediate punishment and long-term punishment. In fact, the covenant itself has in its law... The provision of curses for Israel for failing to keep the terms of this covenant. Some are immediate, some are long term. Now, we will study that rebellion story over the next series of chapters, 32 through 34. So tonight, with the time we have remaining, we're just going to set the stage for the transition of Moses leaving the mountain and getting into the beginnings of this rebellion. But I want you to notice in the narrative tonight how beautifully constructed it is that as we leave it, the Sabbath is reinforced. And is tying us back to creation, reminding us that we're at that point in creation where the whole thing's been set up. And now the question remains, is this the dispensation that finally will address the problem of sin? If anyone were confused about the role of the law, God is about to show unequivocally that it is not a solution for sin. Just as in the garden that couldn't last, this can't last. And the fall is almost an identical pattern, just on a larger scale. So let's go to Exodus 31:18, and I want to begin there because it takes us directly into what follows. When he had finished speaking with Moses upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. So this gives us a chance to remember what's happening 
in the narrative. Moses, as I said, has been on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, if you're thinking back to when's the last time you heard about Moses going up there, that was in chapter 24. So from chapter 24 to chapter 31, that's a time period that corresponds to 40 days of Moses on the mountain. While he's been on the mountain, the people down below have lacked their leader. Now, they have Aaron in the place of Moses, but they really don't have their leader, Moses. And without the leader, they begin to revert to old thinking and to old behaviors. And that begins the chapter that we'll start on just briefly tonight. Chapter 32, let's read verses 1 through 6 to open it up. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose up early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. We'll cover more about how this transpires next week, but I want you to notice just as we start, look at the pronouns in the first several verses and you notice that it is a group of men who are not named or identified here who are the instigators. We'll hear more about them later when Moses comes down from the mountain. But you notice Aaron says, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, implying he's speaking to a group of men. And then it says, all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it into a graving tool, made it into a molten calf. And then it says, and they said, in verse 4, they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar. So Aaron is complicit. We'll hear more about this later. But I want you to note that there's a gang of men who are not all of Israel, but are a group of men within Israel who are instigating this. And Aaron is facilitating it. But they are the ones leading it. We'll see that later when punishment is handed out. So we remember that when Moses went up in chapter 24, he didn't go up alone. He went up with Joshua. Do you remember? Joshua went up, but Joshua stayed halfway on the mountain. He didn't follow. So both of these men have been away from the camp for 40 days. How did the Lord sustain these two men up on the mountain for 40 days? Well, the same way he sustained the whole nation, manna. They eat manna for years out in the desert. They're still in the middle of that time. So every morning, manna has come reliably for all of these people, including those who have been down at the base of the mountain. But while they've been gone, the nation gets impatient. Now, the text says that this group of men encourage Aaron who's been left in charge, to make a golden calf, an idol, for the nation. They say, we don't know what happens to that Moses guy, as if to suggest he's not coming back. But why does Moses' absence lead the nation to want a golden calf, of all things? Realistically, thinking about this as if you were there, how do they expect a golden calf to lead them anywhere? There's got to be more going on here than meets the eye, and in fact there is. And it makes their sin even more troubling when you discover what's really behind their motivation. And it's going to lead to another connection to the creation story in Genesis when we look at it later. So let's look at what's really going on. First, take note of what Aaron does in response to their request. 
And later we're going to hear him retelling this story to Moses. And it's going to be retold in a very creative way. But we'll wait until then to consider Aaron's role here in full measure. Let's just set aside judging him for the moment. For now, let's just look at what he does. First, he directs all the people to produce gold by giving up the gold in their ears. Now, some have thought, perhaps, that his request might have been a way to cause the people to rethink their commitment to the plan. Because if they've got to give up all this gold, maybe they aren't that serious about going ahead with it. Whatever he may have thought, it didn't work if it was the case, because they don't hesitate, it says. The text says they tear off the rings and hand them to Moses. Next, Aaron, I'm sorry, to Aaron, sorry. And then next, Aaron melts them down, fashions them into gold that he can then mold or carve into a golden calf. Then, after he sees the men say to them, this is your God who has brought you out of Egypt, then he decides to build an altar before the calf. And of course, what does an altar imply? Sacrifice. So in verse 6, you see sacrifices taking place on that altar. Now, finally, Aaron announces that a feast is going to take place tomorrow in honor of the Lord. And Aaron tells Israel, this calf was the Lord who led Israel out of Egypt. Now, that is easily misunderstood from us today. And you'll see later in the text that it is not the case that Israel is actually worshiping the calf as if it were a different God. On the contrary, they are worshiping the true God, Jehovah, but they have created a graven image. They've created something to visualize God. Why do they want this? Well, remember, the reason they've done this is to replace Moses. Moses was the visible representative of God from their point of view. But since Moses is gone, the people say we want someone else or something else to visibly represent God to us. So this is not the sin of idolatry in the sense of rejecting Jehovah. It is the sin of idolatry in the sense of graven images made as a way of an object of our worship. Having this understanding makes the people's behavior even harder to understand when you think about it. Because if they just wanted a leader, someone to represent God in place of Moses, why didn't they just ask Aaron to be their leader? Why did they prefer a calf made of gold to be that representative? And the answer gives us the true motivation. And the true motivation is found in three clues here and elsewhere in Scripture. The first comes in the last verse I read. In verse 6, we're told the Israelites made their sacrifices, right? Then they sat down to eat and drink, and then they rose up to play. Now, eating in this fashion was a natural result of a sacrifice. After a bunch of animals are sacrificed, you have a bunch of meat. What are we going to do with all this meat? Well, I guess we're going to have to eat it. So they roast the meat and they eat it. That's what they wanted. They've been living on manna now for several months straight. So the chance to eat meat was high on their priority list. And then it says they rose up to play. That word in Hebrew means sexual promiscuity. So the kind of play involved here is not the kind of play you would hope to find on a playground. This is people engaged in mass orgy. And in fact, in verse 25, when Moses sees them as he comes down from the mountain, he will say all the people are uncovered or without clothing. So this is our first clue as to what's really happening in this moment, that the people were intent on feasting and in having sexual immorality take place in the camp. The second clue comes from a poetic commentary on this moment that's found in Psalms, in Psalm 106. So in 106, 13 and 14, we read this. They, speaking about the people, the psalmist says, They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So the, the psalmist says the reason the people rebelled was because they craved intensely in the wilderness. What, what do they crave? 
all the classics, feasting and sexual promiscuity. Feeding the body and sexually enjoying the body. It was the classic kinds of lust and cravings that drive men to sin. So the second clue coming from Psalms was that the craving of their flesh is the reason, we're told, they were driven into rebellion in the desert. But why do they want a golden calf? We still haven't solved that problem. We get the answer from our final clue, which is taken from Paul's first letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Paul says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things, referring to what I just described out of Exodus, these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. So to quickly wrap up for the night, let me explain what Paul's teaching and let me show you how that third clue finishes the puzzle for us on why these people wanted a golden calf. Paul teaches the Christians in Corinth a lesson and he draws a comparison between the people of Israel and the rebellion that we're sitting there in chapter 32 of Exodus with our day today. And Paul begins by reminding us that the people of Israel had all experienced great manifestations of God in their experience, right? They had seen the sea divided, the pillar of cloud, they ate the manna, they drank from the rock. In fact, Paul says the fire that followed them to protect them from their enemies was Christ himself, the angel of the Lord. So they had seen Christ in a way none of us have even seen him, right? But then Paul turns to his point, which is that despite their exposure to all those incredible manifestations of God, that didn't protect them from falling to temptations of their flesh. As a result of their cravings, they were all laid low in the desert. Most of them were. And Paul says some of them were idolaters because we know not all of the nation of Israel participated in the events. Some did, though. Then he repeats that key phrase from chapter 32 about how they sat down, drank, ate, stood up and played. Then he links that with several other notable examples. And this is where it really becomes easy for us to understand. He lists four examples of times in the desert when Israel rebelled. And I'm just going to recap them briefly without reading the text from Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 10, in verse 8, Paul refers to an incident in Numbers 25, where Balaam told the king Balak that he could weaken Israel by enticing Jewish men to have sex with Moabite women. And the women agreed to have the men come into them only if the men first agreed to worship before Baal. And so the men agreed to worship Baal in order to get the women. And as a result, God struck down the 23,000 men who participated in that. In verse 9, Paul refers to Numbers 21. And then that's a time when the people grumbled over the miserable food they were getting from God. And in response, God sent fiery serpents in and amongst the camp. They started biting people and killing them with their bite. Only if they looked upon that bronze snake on the pole would they survive. And that was a picture of Christ, of course. In verse 10, Paul describes another scene in Numbers 16 in which the nation is again called greedy because they want meat instead of manna. That's when God sends an angel to take the life of Many of Israel who were on the outskirts using fire, then he sends them a bunch of quail till they can't stand it anymore, right? 
What's the common denominator in all of his examples, including the one we're studying in Exodus 32? Fleshly, greedy desire for food and or sex. That seems to be the common denominator for these people. Every time they had a need of those two types and pursued them, they found themselves in idolatry. Their fleshly desires pulled them away from God and into idolatry. They weren't idolaters in the sense that they truly wanted another God. They were fleshly men and women who let their cravings drive them inadvertently into idolatry. So their goal was food and sex, not idolatry. But it brought them idolatry. So why is Paul raising this concern for the church in Corinth? Well, if you know anything about the church in Corinth, they were playing with fire because in the previous chapter of the letter, Paul had been addressing how they had been going into local temples in Corinth to enjoy a nice meat on a night out on the town because the temple was the best place to get a steak because they sacrificed meat there all the time, the best meat. And they also had a restaurant, basically, where you could come and you could buy the meat and eat it. And so the temples were the best place to go out and eat. And Paul had just told them that while they had the liberty to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, they should think twice about subjecting themselves to such temptations because who knows what else they might engage in while they're in the temple eating the meat. He was drawing the analogy that you let your need for something physical drive you to temptations that potentially can corrupt you spiritually. Don't take the chance. Better not to have the meat, even if it is within your rights to have it. So the Israelites saw great things from God, but they still let their sin, their fleshly desires, propel them into idolatry. So with all those three clues, now you have a better appreciation for why they wanted that calf. We know the Israelites did not reject the Lord as God, but they wanted a leader. Why do they need a leader? They had become impatient waiting for Moses because he was their leader. They asked Aaron, make us a God or a leader, someone that they can make a sacrifice with. Because worshiping requires someone to lead them in sacrifice at the altar. There's no priesthood in Israel, at least as far as they know, at this moment. They have a need for a leader who orchestrates that worship moment, which includes sacrifice, which then produces meat for what they wanted to do in the first place. In fact, worshiping bovines in Egypt is a common practice, and it was often conducted in cooperation with sexual acts of worship. So they've seen that behavior. It's learned from their experience in Egypt. They want to repeat it. They don't have a leader who will lead them. And, you know, the best kind of leader to let you do what you want to do is a leader who can't say no, who's inanimate. And so as a golden calf is elevated to leader of Israel, it stands there mute and deaf and motionless while they do whatever they want before it and feel justified in doing so. So without Moses... Then, and Aaron, of course, is not the one they want to have to subject themselves to. They go forward with it. And, of course, Aaron obliges, which is his fault. The next time we come back, we're going to see how the Lord responds to what they do in following after their fleshly desires. Heavenly Father, I do thank you, as I always want to do, Father, for the insights you offer us through the Holy Spirit. And, Father, if we enjoy what we read and what we see, then we're not listening closely enough, Father, for... What we know the word does is convict us because it shows us true righteousness and the lessons of what life requires. And as we think closely and or look closely at those things and think carefully, Father, we, we realize how far we fall from that measure. But by grace, we know, Father, we have been saved from the penalty of our sin. And we know by the Holy Spirit, we have the power to overcome it as well. I pray we would follow and obey, depending upon the strength you've given us in the spirit, knowledgeable about these things you've taught us in your word and committed, Father, to pleasing you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.